Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Each week, we bring you the most interesting conversations from around the media industry. And today, we're talking about the pros and cons of going solo as an independent journalist. Joining me on Zoom today is Isabel Rogal, one such indie journalist who six months ago took the decision to start up the Borderline podcast and newsletter, where she is the sole producer and host of the project. Borderline is described as a community for defiant global citizens, inspired by Isabel's own multiple identities. She is French, born and raised, but spent her formative years abroad, living and working in the UK, the US, Australia and Cambodia. As such, she is passionate about topics like geopolitics and immigration, topics which 2020 has pulled into sharp focus. This whole endeavour is executed through a range of platforms including two weekly guest-led podcasts, one in French and one in English, a Substack newsletter, a YouTube account and a Patreon membership. But how does she learn how to do all of this? Coming up we find out how her seven years at LinkedIn working across different editorial positions gave her the managerial, entrepreneurial and technical skill set to know how to build her own professional brand from the ground up. Also to come, she explains what freedoms and challenges you can expect by going solo too. But first, here is something to put into your diary that you don't want to miss. The journalism.co.uk team is bringing you four days of panel discussions and workshops at our next digital journalism conference, News Rewired. Join us from the 1st of December, where we will look to set you up for success in 2021. Talks include how to lead a disrupted newsroom, leveraging audio to drive subscriptions, overcoming the stigma of mental health, and much, much more. Head over to newsrewired.com for the full agenda and tickets. Book now and take advantage of our early bird offer, saving you £50. Isabel, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. What's the working situation like for you at the moment? Well, um, at this very moment, I'm inside my closet, which is where I spend a lot of time um, nowadays um, as, a, as an independent podcaster. Wow. Been there, done that, and it can get a bit uh, cramped and comfy in those closets, can't it? But uh, we'll talk more about the realities of going solo, of course, today. But you know, let's start a little bit about you, Isabel. A lot of people will know you as the former international editor of LinkedIn. You spent seven years with the company in various editorial roles. Um, and I imagine that job was probably a useful preparation for someone who would go on to be an independent journalist because you had been so surrounded by ideas of building professional presence and being entrepreneurial. So how did your time at LinkedIn kind of prepare you for what you're doing now and going solo as an independent journalist? Oh, it it helped, no doubt. And, and you know, I, I think back to the, f- the first time that I tried to go solo, which, um, you know, that didn't last very long. That was actually before I joined LinkedIn. I was a much younger journalist and, uh, you know, a role at a newspaper ended because, you know, that's the reality of newspapers these days. And I had a few months of, while looking for a permanent role of just freelancing and I was a stringer and I just, you know, took whatever came my way. Um, and I just wasn't strategic at all about it. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and a lot of what I've learned at LinkedIn, what I'm, what I'm extremely grateful to LinkedIn for is actually it gave me a a whole business skill set that I don't think you often get um, in journalism because we're, you know, so adamant about separating the editorial and the commercial side of things. Um, and my experience at LinkedIn and thinking what it was brilliant is that 
editorial was independent from commercial entirely in terms of you know the the what we were covering and how we were treating subjects but we were thinking actively about what does editorial do for the business you know when you're creating a content platform on a social network you know you're not just doing it because oh you know the well needs to be informed i mean yeah sure but what does it do for the business why why do you need to have news here and how do you need to have it and does you know and even when you're just building a, a mobile product or things like that you think okay what does it do in the user experience i just learned a whole new vocabulary that i think to be fair is is now you know present in journalism there's a there's a lot more people thinking about product um and thinking about user experience and things like that 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 certainly did not exist even five years ago but those are really things that i learned at linkedin and i learned about being entrepreneurial and you know building an mvp and testing testing all the time and um and thinking on your feet and thinking all the time so those are all really really helpful skills and now i'm able to think about my my own media you know my podcast and my newsletter as a small business essentially and i and i'm as interested in the art of it as i am in the business of it i love this idea that you using editorial for the for the business ends and and i'm sure we'll draw more upon that um throughout this throughout this conversation um i guess perhaps the obvious question that a lot of people might be wondering isabel is why did you move on from LinkedIn and, and go solo? I mean, as as a company, I imagine that position as international editor was quite secure. It had a, a lot of prestige attached to it. And at the risk of being direct, it was probably reasonably well paid. So what made you make the jump and go solo? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a bonkers decision when you put it that way, for sure. Um, and I should say, it's not like I didn't leave LinkedIn to go solo. Um, those are two separate decisions, uh, and they're about six months apart, actually, um, more than six months apart. Um, I left LinkedIn because I went on sabbatical, actually, in January. You know, before the whole world became what 2020 became, um, I thought I had no idea what was ahead. I didn't intend to launch anything. I just needed enough time to figure out what was next. And I had an absolute blast at LinkedIn. I had a fantastic team. It was, you know, it was a secure role and and, and a well-paid role. And I don't think that's, you know, uh, it's something that we should um, avoid saying, you know, in, in the industry as it is today, I felt like my entire career had been running ahead of this tsunami of, uh, you know, newspaper shutdowns. Every newsroom I've worked at has had layoffs or is half of what it used to be or has even been closed. So I finally got to a point that was, you know, safe and secure in all of that. But it's really down to each person and I'm not the kind of person who enjoys being safe and secure for far, for too long. <laughs> and after a few years, I had an absolute blast, but I felt like I accomplished all that I could accomplish within that structure and uh, learn all that I could learn. And it's a company that got bigger and bigger. And I'm someone who thrives on building things rather than running them. Um, so I like the small entrepreneurial scale. That, that's super interesting. Um, so coming off your sabbatical, then what spurred the decision to, to go solo then? 
given it was obviously such an interesting point in time for the world? I mean, I think you founded the company in June, right? So what was your kind of your vision from that point in time? You know, I don't think it's decision. It's not like you um, decide, okay, my sabbatical is over and now I'm doing this. It's more, it's far more progressive than that. And it's kind of similar to, you know, when I, when I joined LinkedIn, people are like, oh, well, what made you decide to go into tech? And I think honestly, in hindsight, things look very planned, but when you're in the middle of it, you're just kind of, you see kind of what's floating around and you grab something that looks interesting. Um, You know, especially in media these days, I don't think you really have the luxury of all that much planning. Um, And then you make the most of of what comes around. So for me, my sabbatical mixed with the, you know, sheer terror that was the start of the year and the first lockdown um, was was a not a very pleasant time at all. And it wasn't product- productive at all. You know, I was um, writing a little bit or trying to, but mostly nothing much was coming out. And then, I don't know, I just finally woke up one morning with an idea for this podcast. And not just an idea, because I had ideas before, but uh, the energy to pursue it. Um, and I think... Especially, I mean, people who might have experienced burnout uh, would recognize this. It's just, it it needs time. Like, it just, you really need to go for weeks and weeks and weeks of nothing happening. And then one morning you wake up and there's something that appeals again, which is a very good feeling when, <laughs> when you're a creative person and you feel like, oh, finally I get to be creative again. Um, and, um, and so the, the idea for the podcast came and I think like that day I started plotting like the first episode. I'm, I'm someone who really loves learning by doing. And I think if an idea comes, just like start building it like right now, uh, and it's never going to be perfect and it's never going to be finished. Uh, but it's in the doing that, that you really find joy. Mm. It's described as a as a community for defiant global citizens. What does that mean? Perhaps it's because I come from, you know, social media. And actually my very first school was local journalism. That I really strongly believe in the community element of journalism. And so I'm really interested in um, in not just broadcasting, but hearing back and bringing people together. So, and it's, it's not yet what I want it to be, but I think by calling it a community, I am stating that intention, uh, that it's not just, you know, me talking to the audience, it's, it's people coming together. And I have a lot of listeners who actually end up being guests on the podcast and coming on. Um, and, uh, I have a lot of exchanges in social media, Last night, I organized a, a Zoom watch party for the U.S. elections, uh, and it was like a mix of different friends and former colleagues and listeners, you know, people had never met who joined in, and it was just like people from, we ended up having people from literally all over the world, you know, sharing this moment of watching the U.S. election. Um, and I I think that's that's what media can do. And so I think of Borderline as local journalism for global people you're up overnight uh monitoring the u.s election and you're still on our podcast and we're very grateful for that isabel (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I I love the distraction. <laughs> I I slept about four hours. I you know I I stayed up until like five thirty in London, um, and when it looked like it was going to take hours before it went anywhere, and I think that was smart because it's like twelve hours later and it still hasn't gone anywhere. So okay, so when did it dawn on you that there was this kind of gap in the market, as it were, for these audiences uh, and and the podcast and everything else that that followed? Well. I think in a way it always has because the audience is me, <laughs> you know. I think it's important to do something that, that like speaks to you. I mean, I, as much as I talk about business skills, I'm a big believer in intuition. So I follow my own curiosity and then and then hopefully find people and that's the magic of the internet is you always find the people with the same weird curiosity. Um so for me, you know, I'm someone who's the UK is the fifth country that I live in. And I've been bilingual and bicultural or multicultural all of my adult life. Um, and I feel like I, I didn't see a lot of media out there that really spoke to that experience. And I think there's there's definitely a kinship to people who, you know, live that way, who um, have lived in multiple countries and have adopted, you know, habits and holidays from all over the place, you know, whether that's immigrants, third culture kids, expats, nomads, you name it. Um, even if they're from very, very different places and, and each experience is uniquely different, there is a a shared experience of, you know, what does it mean to belong somewhere? What is home? How do you deal with multiple identities? And all those things are things that I've always been interested in exploring and that I, I didn't see explored in many places. And it feels... It's been feeling extra important these past few years because of, you know, what the political scene has become and how hostile part of the world has become to this particular way of living and of seeing the world. So I wrote an essay about this a couple years ago on LinkedIn, and I tried to, like, turn that into a, um, a column, a regular column, but I didn't quite find my... Um, my my tone or my my message exactly or or my product you know which i guess is gets to my point of you know you really need to experiment and pivot and things are gonna take shape over time so i mean i i get that it's it's kind of a, what you're doing is quite niche it is for a very particular person who is multicultured and um, got a lot of world experiences. Uh, is that perhaps the advantage of being an indie journalist then, that you kind of have that um, editorial freedom perhaps to, to explore things exactly how you want and feel is, is right to do? I, totally. I mean, the thing with building um, any kind of media like this is I need. I think you need to find, you need to find a community that you're going to speak to and the people that, that it's going to make sense for. And I don't know that if I would have pitched this to a traditional media outlet, they would have responded necessarily to it, especially given you know, how few immigrants there actually are in a lot of media and how nationally focused most media are. Um, the idea of this thing that crosses borders is, is a little bit alien, I think, to them. Um, so there is definitely freedom, and I the thing that I that I really love is I'm no longer representing anyone but myself. Um, it has it has downsides. I mean, it's hard to work without an editor, without someone else to bounce ideas off of. And I think 
this only works for certain kinds of journalism. There are certain, certainly, you know, I'm, I'm mainly doing interviews and talking to people about their own experiences, you know, and I'm doing some reporting, but nothing really investigative. And I and I wouldn't trust myself to, to do that alone without a, the backup of of an organization and, and the gut check um, that comes with having editors. I'm, I'm sure lots of reporters at home have have similar feelings when they feel like uh, detached from the newsroom and they feel it's perhaps hard to be self-motivated and self um, self-disciplined as well kind of with hours are those kind of things you've had to contend with as well like look this week I'm being absolutely not productive <laughs> you know <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm behind on a podcast and I'm behind on a newsletter and I know it very well and yet I'm like cleaning my apartment right now um, <laughs> I think, you know, but you got to give yourself a break because I think this is such a stressful week that it's hard for anyone to focus on things. So, yeah, actually what I love about it is the, um, the freedom to work the way that it makes sense for you. So, you know, I've worked plenty of weekends. I work through the night and I forget to have dinner. I think when you have a project that you really care about and that you're really into, um, it, it can really carry you for hours and hours and you don't realize it. Uh, that's, you know, that's flow, essentially. Um, and also, I'm completely free to work in the way that makes sense for me. So I've never been very effective during the day. But I'm at my desk the second that I wake up and the first three hours of the morning and then nothing happens until evening. And then I can be working again from 6 p.m. to midnight. And so that's your that's your full work day, and there's nobody telling me that this isn't right. So that's that's the joys of independence. But certainly, the thing that keeps you accountable is uh, is you have to make the rent check at, at the end of the of the month. <laughs> I, I like this idea that you can kind of set your own hours and kind of be in control of your own um, work environment. It sounds like certainly one of the perks of the job. Um, thinking about kind of matching products to to your audience. You know, you're you're doing a lot at the moment. I see you've got the podcast, um, which is in two languages, one of which transcribed, a newsletter, um, a YouTube channel, a Patreon membership. There's lots going on. So how did you think about matching product to, to your audience? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think in the beginning, the thing is you have to kind of throw a lot of lines out in the water and, and see which ones catch. <laughs> so... Um, you end up having a lot of platforms and it certainly does take time. And I think over time you learn um, what what works and what doesn't so uh, that you might refocus after a while. So, for instance, you know, the French language podcast, that's just something that I just was very eager to do because I've, I've spent my entire life trying to explain the English speaking word to to my, my French um, friends and family um, and it's something that I really enjoy doing and with the US election there was just so much that was completely arcane and incomprehensible that I thought was worth explaining um, that said it has a really small audience and so I don't think I'm going to make this a priority you know now that we're past the election it was something that was just kind of fun to do the you know the Patreon and it's uh, that's not much work really it's just you're releasing things earlier um and then you try to figure out how each product serves a particular purpose. So where I am right now is the podcast is really 
the shop window, like the really public thing, you know, podcasting is a is a free medium. It's extremely hard to monetize um, and and to grow, but but it's it's allows me to do deep interviews and like get get really great content and be the shop window to the whole thing. And then I'm kind of revamping the newsletter at the moment to maybe make it something that's a little bit more provides a little bit more value to that niche audience of people who live all over the world um, and need more practical information and maybe that can be monetized um, as well as digital products the thing that's interesting is actually there's quite a few people now doing this out there some people have been doing it for way longer than I have you know if you look at Thomas Bechdahl it's like he's been at this 10 years and I mean, I would encourage people who want to do this to do it because it's incredibly fun. But I also want to be super realistic that you better have a lot of runway in, in savings or other means of of uh, supporting yourself because it's growing the audience and growing it sufficiently to monetize. This is just a really long and hard game. And I think most people aren't going to be able to do that. I am absolutely not sure that I'm going to be able to monetize this in a way that it will ever be my full-time income. It certainly is just, you know, pocket change at this point. A lot a lot to think about there and a lot to perhaps un- unpack as well. You know, you talk about the financial runway, Isabel. What was yours equivalent to? Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to share numbers, but I mean, I, I worked in tech, so I went on sabbatical thinking, okay, I'm good. Also, I live in a country with uh, free healthcare. I don't know how people in America are doing this. Um, but, you know, I, I've read various um, articles on this. I remember um, Aminatou Sao wrote, like when she launched on her own, she was like, I had three years of runway and you shouldn't go with less than that. Um, I think that's that's a lot. <laughs> but um, I would certainly go with at least one year of runway. Um, and, and I, you know, I have income now. I have consulting clients. Um, and that's, you know, and that's another challenge is I wish I could spend every single minute of my day on my own business. But um, but if you want to keep the lights on, you also have to do other work uh, for income. And that distracts you from your business, which means the growth is even slower, which means you're pushing back the date at which you can do, you know, only your business. So it's uh, it's always a, a, a balance. But um, yeah, it's it's certainly... It's certainly not a not an easy thing, and I think it's no surprise when you look at the people who are, you know, doing a solo newsletter or a, or any kind of solo media endeavor that it correlates with just a lot of privilege. You know, it's not an extremely diverse part of the industry uh, because, and it and it's it's often also people who are able to monetize because they're covering business topics they're doing things that people can uh, put on their expense reports and so that's a lot easier to monetize so it's uh you know it's not a model that's going to work for everyone Mm. you make a good point there which which i did want to raise and it would be remiss of me not to ask given the fact that you know um this field of independent journalist is quite male dominated Isabel so what is it like doing it as a woman well I don't know what it's like doing it as a man because I've only ever experienced the world as a woman (laughs) touche but um I think well I think there's one angle that isn't talked about much um that makes it more difficult for women 
Um, and that's that it's kind of a weird intersection between like journalism and being an influencer. Like you're, you're giving, you're putting yourself personally out there and there is an, a personal and an individual connection with the audience. And that's what makes people care as well, right? Because you're being honest and you're being vulnerable and you're just including yourself as, as part of the brand, like however much I hate that word. And um, that comes with a certain amount of risk uh, for your personal safety, for your mental health, um, you know, because there are always weirdos on the internet. Um, and just there are elements, you know, it's silly things like, okay, what if you want to send swag to your followers? And now everyone works out of their own homes, right? Um, like, do you put a return address on, on, the, on the parcel? I, it's it's silly, right? But there's and and you know we know that female journalists get a lot more harassment um, online, so you know I think there's there's you know possibly that that angle that makes it a little bit more complex, and it is a little bit in the back of my mind after having had a handful of unpleasant experiences on the internet. But it's only ever you know point zero one percent of people you encounter, but they're they're still they're always there in the back of your mind. That said, um, I have found the industry itself or the sub-industry like of people who do, you know, solo podcasts and newsletters and whatever to be incredibly welcoming and friendly um, and and willing to share advice and tips and, and all of that. Um, and, you know, to, to men and women alike um, with with no no issues, which is which has been really lovely. And kind of compensates for the fact that you're doing this on your own. Um, there is, it's, it's almost like working in a team or in a newsroom because you know you go on Twitter and there's all these really f lovely people who who obviously know the struggle and, and know the pain and, and know the the difficulties and the challenges. You mean exactly, and will be like more than willing to do like a visibility exchange with your podcast or anything like that. You know, kind of um, send followers your your way and vice versa and. Um, show up last minute on your podcast because a guest cancelled. You know, <laughs> all these case things. in point. You case in point. <laughs> Still grateful for that one, by the way. Um, My pleasure. So, kind of looking back at the last six months that you've been doing this, Isabel. You know, are you are you happy with how it's going? Would you kind of do anything differently if you were to redo it, or you know, how's it going basically? Yeah, I mean, of course, I would do everything differently, but if I had I wouldn't have learned what I learned and and I wouldn't know so you know it's just all part of a of the learning process you know I ended up changing hosts uh, the the hosting software of my podcast I uh, the first I think the sound is horrendous on the first like 10 or 12 episodes of my podcast I finally in the last couple episodes found the right sound setup so there's a lot that you that you learn as you go um I probably would have gone on a different schedule because like a weekly episode of a podcast as produced as mine are is insane <laughs> in terms of uh, of of time scale like hard relate <laughs> yeah yeah it's just it's just nuts um the thing that's actually really hard is finding the relevant guests and and booking them and getting time in their calendar and then you know once once i've got the interview in the can like i can work through the night and get it out the next day i don't mind but just 
finding those interviews is always a battle. So yeah, there's a lot I've probably would have done differently, but um, but I'm I'm learning as I go and and I'm having a blast with it. Um, I think the thing to know is that it's going to be more work than you think. It's going to grow more slowly than you think. Um, especially podcast, I mean, newsletter too, but like audience growth is so hard and it's so saturated now. Um, and it's going to make less money than you think. Like, you know, you can't just open a Patreon and think, oh, people are all going to find what I'm doing amazing. Um, and actually a lot of people have extremely good feedback and love it and listen to every single episode. That doesn't mean they're going to open their wallet either. So, uh, <laughs> it you know, it all is more work and takes more time than you think but it's also a lot more fun than I thought so you know as long as I'm having fun with it and that I find ways to you know pay my rent and put food on the table you know saying that with the immense privilege of having a financial cushion and no kids to care for uh I will I will keep doing this um I in my head I'm kind of thinking you know I want to see through 2021 with it and see where it is at the end of the year. So I kind of have, I think it helps to have um, goals. So, you know, I kind of have goals in mind for where I want it to be by the end of next year. Um, and then and then I can reassess. And if, you know, if I'm not having fun with it at some point, I can, I can always move on. I think it's so hard to have any visibility into the future right now that I think if you, if you find something that works for you right now, um, you're on top, you know, <laughs> like, I think the, uh, expectations are different at this particular moment. You know, the, the golden rule of DIY is that uh, a job always takes twice as long as you think. So it's, it's, it's it feels quite similar to, to what you're saying. Um, you touch on your, you touch on your goals for the end of the year. What kind of, uh, expectations and targets did you place upon yourself when you kind of set this set this whole project in motion so i mean the goals came after <laughs> it's not like when i when i started it i was just like hey it'd be fun to do a podcast i've been listening to them for like 15 years maybe it's time i do one uh, i just have numbers in mind which i'm not going to share about how many you know how many paying subscribers i want to have um which translates to you know how many subscribers i want to have period because the conversion rate is so low it helps to have a target to know what you're shooting for, you know, whether whether you make it or not. Um, again, that's some business skills that I learned <laughs> from uh, that I, you know, I never would have thought about a few years ago. Can you can you elaborate on what those business skills are? Well, just in terms of um, how you're building a plan, you know, how you how you build your create your objectives, um, and and how and how you break down how you're gonna get there. Um, I think the main thing is is focus, which is something that I'm still learning. You can do a lot of different things, but they should all kind of ladder up to a goal. So if my goal is to reach, say, you know, 500 paying subscribers, you know, then everything I do should help build towards that goal. Um, Because otherwise you get distracted by a lot of things that, you know, might sound good, but aren't actually serving your final objective. And, and there are plenty of things that might be worthy, but focus is the hardest and the most important thing um, in, in business, especially when you're starting out and your resources are so limited. 
Um, you know, and I'm saying this, and as you pointed out, I have like 12 different things going on. So that's why, you know, when I look at the French podcast, I'm like, well, that's fun, but it's not actually serving my goal because it's like a wholly different audience. I have a handful of people who listen to both, but that's that's really niche, people who can do that. So uh, that tells me, you know, focus. And, and those are literally things that I will like write on post-it notes all over <laughs> my desk because... You know, when I was when I was a manager, you know, part of my job was always to in my one on ones with people on my team was always to be like, okay, so remind me, what are the things that you're focusing on this quarter? You know, what is your big objective? What are you doing right now? Okay, how do these two connect? Right. That that's a big role of a manager. And now, in a way, I have to do this with myself, uh, which is which is the, the challenge. It's things that I also do in my in my consulting work, in my coaching work with um, other people in media is, uh, you know, we often think first, oh, like, I want to do this cool product, like, I want to do this cool newsletter, or I want to do this cool podcast, or whatever. But we don't necessarily think what for, like, what is the goal that it serves? I think that's a really good um, practical takeaway to kind of leave with there, Isabel. I, I appreciate you coming in at the last minute to save this very podcast, um, as, as we talked about today. And um, I appreciate all of your insights and um, time today. Thank you very much. Well, it's my absolute pleasure. Um, yeah, I lo I, and it's it helped me formalize some of the, the things that I was thinking about as well. So it's, it's always uh, nice to do that. Great to speak to Isabel there about her day-to-day -day realities of indie journalism. There's so much to be taken from this conversation, but the main takeaway for me is just the size of the task of going at it alone. It's a long game, and that really underlines the need to be crystal clear about which specific audience you want to appeal to, and be ruthless about the business decisions along the way. Always ask yourself if what you're doing is really contributing to the objectives of the business. We will, of course, keep an eye on the Borderline Podcast, and you can find those episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. While you're there, you'll also find us by searching and subscribing to the Journalism.co.uk podcast. And if you'd like to feature on our show, I'd love to hear from you. Drop me an email on jacob at journalism.co.uk. But that's all we have time for today. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.